taking moderate degrees of risk, taking a chance. You know, we all go through this this life once. You know, try to make a difference, right? Don't don't just fit in and get get comfortable where you are, but always be striving to do something more, do something different, do something better. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. Before I introduce this week's guest, of course, as always, please leave me a review so I can read it on the air, give you a big shout out, and it helps others find the show. So thank you in advance. So I'm sitting here this afternoon with Mark Slaughter, Chief Executive Officer of Infrastructure Networks. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great today, doing this virtual thing, right? I know. I know. It's, It's just the new normal, I guess. Mark, let's discuss how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Out of college, I had the option of doing the traditional investment banking or consulting or, or stepping into Main Street. And I really wanted not to advise, but actually do things. And so I joined Halliburton. Mm-hmm. And doing that as a college graduate, I actually decided to go out in the field. I was hired by the credit department. But they had a field training program. So I actually went out and drove a truck <laughs> in 18. 18- That's interesting. So you know, a few people said, well, you know, what exactly are you doing as a college grad doing this? But it was a kind of a two-year program, kind of a little bit secret. Some people didn't know that or I, otherwise that wouldn't have worked. And I went out there and you know, drove a pump truck you know, and became a cementer, a, a frack, frack master, a special tools operator, just really worked through a typical Halliburton camp at the supervisory level. So a lot of fun, very good experiences. Right, right. So after that? After that, I then went into the credit department at Halliburton and went out to Midland. Uh, this was in the early 80s. And so I watched... I watched the Rolls-Royce dealership fail, the First National Bank of Midland fail, and all of a sudden being a credit department manager was became very interesting because it became a lot of workouts. And a lot of a lot of oil and gas men I saw cry in their offices. It was such a bad downturn. This this was wow. where, I think where oil oil went down to about you know eight dollars a barrel back then and just it was catastrophic in the early eighties. Just just catastrophic. It had gone from what four thousand rigs down to, you know, just a few hundred. Just a wow. dramatic period. Yeah, very dramatic. I guess that's better than negative forty, right? <laughs> that's right. That that. <laughs> exactly. And then from there I took a leave of absence and went to business school. So and then you know worked for Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. That was kind of an interesting summer in corporate finance and MA. But then decided to go back to Halliburton. But this time I went into the corporate development department, which is a euphemism for M&A, mergers and acquisitions, and worked right. for a couple of years. And then, you know, kind of, I guess at, at the end of the day, the way to shorthand the rest of Halliburton, I was there 18 years, was in senior staff positions. I ran the M&A department at one point, ran strategic planning, but also was overseas in some some operating roles. And so that was just, just a lot of fun. Great company, but, you know, ultimately moved on after after 18 years. And when we did the dresser acquisition, it was right after that that, that I was recruited away. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. So of all those different things you did, which one was your favorite? I think more than anything else, it was probably Project Go, which stood for Global Organization. And so I was the head of planning, but I was sort of the chief of staff to the top executives. And this was a time when when Halliburton had disparate businesses, Wellex and Otis and Halliburton Services. And the idea was to pull it all together as Halliburton Energy Services, an entire energy services group tightly integrated. Both you could run efficiently, but also you, you ran it as a uh, think global, act local organization. So strong product service lines, but also strong region management to execute at the edge. And so it was a very powerful model and a, and a business model organizational model I've continued to use in later assignments in other companies. Excellent. Excellent. So other than the downturns, what was some of the real big issues and trials you've had to go through? Yeah, I think, well, more than anything else, I think it has been, you know, kind of taking lessons from the downturns and, you know, the opposite of a downturn is an upturn. And, you know, what, what I've learned is, is maybe more of a Exxon model, which is not to get overexcited in the up cycle, but not to panic in the down cycle. There, there are clearly some steps you have to take. And currently, you know, we're in another, you know, kind of, you know, super downturn, it appears, right? We're, we're, well, I don't think we ever recovered from the last one. So it's a double dipper, that's right. Yeah. So now the pandemic is, you know, collapsed energy demand. And so, yeah, we never pulled out and now we've, we've taken a deeper dive. And you know what? What we're trying to do in my current company, what you typically do in oil field services, is you certainly have to take steps on the defensive side to maintain financial health and match your cost structure, you know, to to the to the market that, that is there. And if you're thinking smartly enough, that you anticipate being in front of you, so you're not having to pull off the bandaid a little bit of, at a time, but you can rip it off fairly cleanly and get positioned for what you believe the future is. But then it's also going on offense. You know, they call it, you know, surviving and thriving, but the thriving end of it is really going after the business and trying to increase your market share and market position so that at the end of the day, when the downturn is over, you can actually come out of the downturn stronger than you entered it. And that's, that's really the part I think a, a lot of companies miss is the offensive side of this, to circle the customers you want, go get those, you know, beat back competition at the same time and come out of this thing stronger. So that that's... That's a you know key lesson I, I've learned the, the good way and the hard way in, in the oil field services industry. Yeah. So let's talk about why you founded Infrastructure Networks. Yeah. Well, technically, I'm not the founder. I'm mid-inning relief. <laughs> <laughs> baseball parlance. So I, I'm the guy that in private equity or venture capital-backed settings that if a founder gets the business off the ground, if it's gaining traction, I'm the guy that you bring in to try to you know build it to last, you know, to put in right. systems and processes and people and, and where I can you know play a role in trying to scale that be, you know beyond the founder status. And so that's I've I've now at infrastructure networks now stepped into another setting like like the one I had before where I ran a company called Rignet, where again I was not the founder there either, but was brought in by the investors to to scale it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's let's talk about your 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 current role and 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 what infrastructure networks does. Yeah. So infrastructure networks provides remote communications out to drilling rigs and well pads, really playing against the upstream energy industry, drilling completions and production. So we, in many ways, enable the digital oil field. You know, we're not the applications on top that people use, but we're the connectivity that makes it happen. Gotcha. And then that communications layer has really evolved over over years. I've been in the industry probably since, in the remote communications industry, serving oil and gas since 
maybe around 2000 or so, but back in mm-hmm. the back in the 90s, it used to be for land drilling that you would roll out a coaxial cable all the way out to a well location. That's you, really long cable. That's really long. Yeah, exactly. It might, might go for a few miles across lease roads and across fields and in, in gullies and that sort of thing. And it was cut a lot, but it would deliver analog phone service and kept the company man from having to go into town to a payphone. Right. That was a big deal. He could stay on location and talk and order things and, and communicate back to the field office. Then that was replaced by satellite starting in the 90s and into the 2000s. And then satellite came in, came in, but the company man said, hey, I still want that analog phone line. But now with satellite, I can get the Internet. And now I can start, you know, not just entertaining myself, browsing, that sort of thing, but I can actually start emailing back to the office and doing those sorts of things. And then ultimately voice, voice over IP moved on. Boy- Yep. You know, moved on to satellite. And now this company that I run today, Infrastructure Networks, was conceived in 2011 around 4G LTE, or what's called terrestrial wireless. So, mm-hmm. that, so, so the company has built out 130,000 square miles of coverage inside the continental U.S. It's about the size of the country of Japan or the state of California. And it's arrayed against four major shale basins with the right sort of flat topography for terrestrial wireless. And that's the Permian, the Eagleford in South Texas, the Scoop Stack in Oklahoma, and the Bakken in North Dakota. Uh-huh. And so we deliver this super high speed, low latency you know, connectivity that differs from the, the public wireless carriers, such as AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon, in the sense that they're really good along the highways and in the major cities, but not deep in these basins. Our, yeah, our, that's true. Our coverage is consistent in these bases. It's really aimed at the oil and gas industry in those bases. Yeah. So what do you think about the whole 5G concept? Well, the, the good news is we brought in our original investor was a, is a company called Altera that was also an original investor in RigNet. So this is my second run with Altera. They're a venture capital firm that plays at that intersection of technology and oil and gas. Mm-hmm. But also we brought in a large private equity firm, Apollo Global Management, one of the world's largest private equity firms. And they were looking to invest more in the innovation phase of oil field services. And so they, they have stepped in. And with their money, we not only deepened capacity in places like the Delaware Basin, and the Midland Basin, we upgraded the technology to be 5G capable. Oh, that's co- so yeah. cool. So we're future proof now. We don't actually have a, an active 5G site, but we're actively talking to operators about that and actually some drillers as well about the, the advent of 5G, which really has two manifestations to it. One is and the way we think about it is super high speed. Right. Uh, we will not have the tower density that you would have, say, in the city of Houston to offer it across the basin, but we can drop what's called a small cell using millimeter wave technology at a well pad or a drilling rig. And within about a half mile radius, we can deliver gigabit speeds, which you know will enable all sorts of data intensive applications that today have some, some trouble communicating with, with, with current speeds. So that's one aspect. The, the other aspect, though, that's basin-wide is the 3GPP standards for 5G allow for narrowband IoT. So that is more at a sensor level. And there have been low-power radios developed that allow you to connect to sensors and actuators, say, on a, on, on a producing site or processing facility. And you can, now, you can now literally scale in a basin across millions of devices through the use of 5G. 
So it's really 5G ultra broadband or gigabit speed and then 5G narrowband machine to machine type communications that are going to be enabled by 5G. So it's an exciting period. We're glad to have the investment behind us. And now we're working with operators, you know, despite some of the downturn and concerns around budgets, but we're working around, you know, trying to commercialize this 5G technology. Oh, yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, because you look around and you see, you know, these huge towers with, you know, these big cells and. How is that constructed on a well site like that? Well, there we just we we will go next to you know a company man's trailer and basically you know raise a, a radio up about you know fifteen to twenty feet to be able to see a tower, and it doesn't exactly have to be line of sight, but you know, our towers are somewhere between you know twenty and thirty miles apart you know across this hundred thirty thousand square mile network. It's a data network, but with VoIP you can you know deliver you know voice over that data network as well. So, you know, they won't have the tower density you'd find in a city. Right, right. We're we're really focused on oil and gas operations. And just to make sure that we're clear, 5G doesn't give anybody coronavirus or cancer or any of that crap, right? Not anymore more than anything else, right? So yeah. I've, I've read that as well. Isn't that funny? Or, or if you live next to transmission lines, you know, for electricity, the same thing, you know, that, that field is going to give you cancer, supposedly. Yeah, right. No kidding. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? Well, I would say in some ways, if you think about, you're maybe thinking about careers, because this is a discussion about a career path, I would try not to plan too far ahead. If I if I go back, you know, to business school when I got my MBA and then thought about, well, what what am I going to do? You know, and now that I'm, you know, towards the end of my career, certainly towards the in closer to the end of the runway, I would say that, you know, you've got to be opportunistic and be open. Uh, even if you're in a, a current path that you like pretty well, you always need to be scanning a bit and see what opportunities are out there. I couldn't have guessed, you know, exactly what I would have done, but I was in early in early days trying to plan ahead and take the right steps and do those sorts of things. And you, you'll just never be able to, you know, fully plan your future. You can certainly take some of the steps educationally and otherwise to get some of the skills in place, but you've really got to be open to opportunities when, once you're when, once you're out there working. Yeah, but not and not just that, but you also have to take into account, you know, life throws you know curveballs at you. It's well, not right. always going to work according to plan. That, that's right. You're going to have you're going to have you know successes hopefully, but also some failures, and it's it's to learn from those failures. Particularly if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have probably in the early days a lot more failures than successes, right? And learning, right. learning, learn, learning from those, learning when to you know cut those short and get focused on the next opportunity. You know, the, I think most careers today are not you know 40 years and a gold watch at the end. It's really going to be a a set of different companies and maybe startup businesses. And, you know, I discovered maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the whole world of private equity backed companies, that's a parallel universe compared to traditional corporate settings. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what book influenced you the most and why? Well, the most fun I've had book wise is a book I read about the Middle East, because when I was at Rignet, I traveled the world a lot. And I read a book called The Desert Queen. And it was a it was a British woman who went to Iraq, and, and you know this was you know well before a lot of the wars and conflicts that we've seen you know from the Bush presidency onward. But mm-hmm. they're shaping, understanding, and then shaping that culture to a great degree. So I was impressed that it was a female in the Middle East because you know that's a place where you know probably women's rights are not nearly as advanced as say they are in the United States, and right? It, he was so smart and so respected 
that she commanded outsized influence. And as a Western woman, you, you know, UK, UK, but and her name escapes me right now, but the book is called The Desert Queen. So I just enjoyed it on many levels. I learned a lot about you know the history of the Sunnis and the Shias and just, just really, really, really enjoyed the, the book. It, it's, been, it's been out for a while, but I think that's been the most interesting book for me. Yeah, and I'll make sure to put a link for anybody that's interested in reading it in the show notes. What is your most used business tool? Yeah, that's interesting. It's going to be, particularly in today's environment, it's going to be a, a social device. I am an Apple fanboy. So I would say, <laughs> so I'd say it's a, an iOS device and I'd, I'd be torn between my iPhone and my iPad because they're sort of interchangeable. But I also feel I need both because you know, an iPad will do more. and I, It's not just more screen real estate. It actually you know, does more where you can actually work on it a bit. And then, but I, I'd say it's an iOS device. Is my, I'm right, right there with you. We're, we run an Apple shop and I'm working off of an iPad right now. Yeah, and I, I've got them all. I've got you know the iPhone, I got the iPad, I got the MacBook Pro, and I got an Apple Watch. So I've got yeah. just, just about everything. I think my Apple Time machine just died, so I can't back up the machines anymore. But <laughs> yeah, we had to go. I had to go through an alternative way too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Like, certainly, today's environment, you've got to certainly have all of those, you know, all of these devices in place because we're all sort of distanced from, distanced from each other. Right, exactly. It's been a major help with all of that. Absolutely. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? Yeah, it's interesting. We have, sounds like a little bit of a derogatory term, but there is no one left today in our geographic area that offers a private licensed network the way we do. Mm-hmm. There's no direct competitor, but there are a set of uh, companies, and I know they may be listening, so I'll, I'll say this the right way, but who borrow the public carrier networks. And so they will kind of rebroadcast, or it's called boosting. They will boost the signal, say, south of I-10 in Midland, uh-huh. and, and send, or I-20, and send it south to deeper parts of the basin and use borrow, in effect, AT&T or Verizon's or T-Mobile's network and then carry a, a group of field technicians and an accounting department to bill and that sort of thing. And so they compete against us. And, you know, we, by our calculations, we have the biggest market share in the Permian, the, the largest basin by far in terms of market potential. But, you know, these guys, despite a borrowed network as, as compared to our own network, they compete very effectively. They, they compete on customer service. They compete on, you know, kind of hustle and, you know, working the business hard and trying to craft some interesting solutions on top. So they're, they're more credible competitors than I would have expected. So there's, there's high respect there, but we also have a private license network that we own that we do really think is a differentiator, particularly as we get 5G going on that network. So we'll see how it works out, but they, they certainly have been impressive in terms of how they've competed in the marketplace. Isn't that sort of how T-Mobile got started was using other people's networks? Yeah. Some people call that, think in, in the uh, telecom industry, it's called smart building. Yeah. Uh, for example, if we wanted to go to a new basin, you know, we could go get some FCC spectrum put up a bunch of towers and buy a bunch of equipment and, and stand that up. Or you could go in with a borrowed network, you know, which we call off net or off network, or we might borrow Verizon's network and use that as a basis to build up the business, learn about local conditions, build relationships with clients. And then you drop your capital into your own network where you can then make higher margins and higher returns. That's smart building. Yeah. And okay. In our case though, you know, we quickly just, you know, we saw these four basins as key and even though three of the basins have dramatically reduced activity, you know, our, our long-term belief is these are the four basins that matter. They're, they're not just a topography match for us, 
but they're also, we, we believe, very viable bases for quite a while. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. What's your most important lesson learned? Yeah, I, t- I talked about you know being opportunistic career-wise, but I, I would say you know don't don't be afraid to fail or to step out, and that you know it depends where you are in, in your life. A lot of people think when you're young and single, that's the time to take that entrepreneurial chance, because when you're you know married and have kids and you're you know you've got a mortgage and those sorts of things, taking that sort of risk you know could could be extremely detrimental if it doesn't work out. But I think I, th- I think that aside, you know taking moderate degrees of risk, taking a chance. You know, we all go through this, this life once, you know, try to make a difference, right? Don't, don't just fit in and get, get comfortable where you are, but always be striving to do something more, do something different, do something better. Just do something, right? <laughs> just do something. But, and I, I think, you know, here I am, you know, later in career, but I'm still, you know, having fun. And I, I don't think even 65 is a magic age anymore. You know, there's the the former CEO of Halliburton, uh, Dave Lazar, just became. I think he's he's certainly over 65. I think he's like 67. He just became CEO of Centerpoint Energy. You know, the transmission and distribution company, the right electric and gas utility here in town. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And, and, and why he doesn't need to? He, he he likes the excitement and the chance to make a difference. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So, how is your role now important to the future of the oil and gas industry? Well, we think in, in many ways that in a lower commodity price environment like this, oil and gas companies have to learn how to make money, right? How to earn compensatory returns when, when oil may be range bound between 40 and $45, right? Which right. is tougher in the shale basis because they have a higher marginal cost and compared to you know, places like Saudi Arabia, which kind of was, they were under attack, right? In the in the oil price war that, that resulted here. Because yeah. And higher economics, but you have to learn how to lower those costs. And we think not only operational technology innovation, but information technology innovation, are, those things are going to be key. The OTIT convergence are going to be key to permanently lowering those costs. You can't just go to service companies and beat them up on price and expect that to be sustainable. It's really got to be you know technology being brought to bear. And so we think you know we're in doing providing that connectivity out at the edge. We allow those applications to come to life and uh, in very interesting ways. That's awesome. What's your favorite podcast, Mark? Well, it's This Morning with Gordon Deal. Oh, yeah? What's that about? It's Well, it's just kind of a, a daily recap. It comes out each morning, obviously. And so I, I take that on a run and I usually listen to that. He kind of, in a chatty way, sort of covers you know, the basic stories of the day. It used to be connected with the Wall Street Journal and now it's, it's separate, but he, it's still Gordon Deal. And I just I just like his, his commentary, which is you know right down the middle. It's not you know most of the news today is left or right, and he doesn't really he doesn't really seem to take sides. He just you know calls the shots even. Well, that brings me some comfort because it's either one way or the other, and it's very hard to find someone in between. That's exactly. No one's in the middle today. That, that, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> so thank you again for joining me today, Mark. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about infrastructure networks, how might they go about doing that? Well, you can, if you're a potential customer or a customer, it's sales at inetlte.com, I-N-E-T-L-T-E.com. I presume I could, you know, if you want to reach out to me directly, I can get, give my email address if you'd like. Yeah, you can do that, but I can also add your LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn profile, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I- Please talk to anybody here on, on any topic. So I really, really appreciate Paige you you interviewing me today. Really oh yeah, it was great, great. You had plenty of insight, and I really appreciate you coming on. All right, so that concludes this episode. 
So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. And now here are events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.